Hark! It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today we're looking at book number 50. That's book number 50. And it's also the first 87th Precinct book of the 21st century. So it is time to take your partners for The Last Dance. My name is Paul Abbott, and to discuss the book, I'm joined as ever by my colleagues Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. And Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. As usual, thanks to all of you out there who engage with the show online, who share and comment and the like. We really appreciate that. It's very handy. Remember, you can find us at Hark87Podcast on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and you can email us on that address at gmail.com, should you so desire. So, yeah, 50 books in, which feels... Well, it is significant, whatever way you slice it. It feels significant for us as well, because I feel like we are... Having entered the last straight, we're getting very close to the finish line now, really, with these. From the year 2000, which... So, I think we better check in with what was going on in the year 2000. I suppose so. Yeah. Millennium bugs. Yeah. Or not. not. Or not happening, really. No. If you ever make a joke about the Millennium Bug, it turns out then people turn around and say, the reason it didn't happen was because of a concerted effort behind the scenes by people to prevent any problems. Which is true, but it's not as much fun as being silly about the, <laughs> the Millennium Bug. But yeah, I can't remember what I did for the turn of the Millennium. I was working in my sister's pub in Halifax. And the first song that came on in the Millennium was Deacon Blue. The one that goes, ooh, 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 that one. Oh, yes. Okay. I think I know which one you mean. Real Gone Kid? That's possibly. the one, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. That was the first song I heard, I remember. Marvellous. And the, the pub was dead. Totally dead. Everyone stayed at home, didn't they? Seems to remember. Oh, ah, yeah. I just can't remember what I was doing. Uh, I, I feel like my folks probably threw some kind of New Year's party, which I was probably at. Yes. Um, But sad to say, I can't actually remember whether I was or not. Yeah, because this, <clears throat> this would have been during our third year of university, yes. but it would have been the Christmas holidays. Mm-hmm. So, no, can't remember for the life of me. Oh, no, no, nope. nothing, nothing. <laughs> Sorry, folks. I was serving beer to non-existent customers because there weren't any and then the pub shut early. Well, there you go. What a wild time had by all of us. Momentous occasion, clearly. (laughs) And that Cher song was doing the rounds. That might have been the second song I heard. The one with the the vocoder voice. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So, Mm. as I can remember, exact minor details, you two can't remember (laughs) anything. Who you were with. No. Country. (laughs) Town. I assume Strange I was in them. Stoke, but... Yeah. Oh, you can't, yeah. I'm just but, guessing. Yeah. Anyway, there we there go. There we go. But uh, let's have a look at the world in the year 2000. Mm. I haven't got many things on here because, again, whilst doing my research, it was like, do I want to just list a load of horrible things that have happened at the start of the programme? Not really. Don't let a habit of 49 previous episodes <laughs> stop. <laughs> well, I've, I've picked out a couple of things. So, obviously, the Prime Minister was Tony Blair. Mm-hmm. Uh, the President of America was Tony Blair. I've written that down wrong. <laughs> well, I don't remember that. Well, I've got to remember <laughs> the year 2000. What, what did happen then? That'd be Bill Clinton, won't it? 
It would be, yeah. yes, for a little while yes. longer. Yeah, I don't know why. So PM Tony Blair, President Tony Blair, if my notes are to be believed. 1st of January, the Millennium Dome in London officially opened. Uh, ever been? No. No. No, I've walked past it recently. Wasn't it going to be just a temporary building and then it's still there, isn't it, all these years yes. later? Yeah. yeah, I remember there was a big fuss about it being built and then everyone sort of wondered what it was for and it it seemed like no one had actually figured out what it ought to be for it was just oh it's the millennium let's build a dome yes it was a a, a white elephant i think mm. is the word they use for it wasn't it but it had all these different zones in it mm. um yeah. Uh, that with different displays of I, I don't know a new age crystal palace i think wasn't it <laughs> i but, think so uh, yeah they just use it for hosting Concerts, don't they? Yeah, isn't that so. what it is. It's now? A, a yeah, it's a gigantic O2 Academy, isn't it? I think. Yeah. So let's see what else happens in that year. Oh, I'll tell you what's actually while we're talking about the Millennium Dome. Of course, something that did happen later in the year, seventh of November, in fact, was the attempted jewel robbery oh, there. Yeah. So that was where a gang drove a digger through the side of it into the De Beers <laughs> diamond display because oh, right. it was like oh, a, yeah, yeah. yeah, and. But the police had been tracking them for ages and this thing, and they were going to get away in a boat going down the Thames, like proper heist stuff. But um, cool. got caught. Yeah. All got caught. But the old Cockneys, I imagine they were all Cockneys. Oh, probably. Probably yeah. all proper Cockney wide boys. Definitely. All pearly kings. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a giveaway, isn't it? More <laughs> diamonds for me coat. You can follow the, the where the sun glistens on their <laughs> outfits. Yes. No. Well, it, yeah, it was a gang. They attempted to steal £350 million worth of diamonds by driving a digger into the Millennium Dome. Well, subtle. Worth and a then go- smashing worth, a case with a... Worth a go, I suppose. A sledgehammer. In there. Yeah. yeah. So, it didn't work anyway. But that was, that was in uh, November. Uh, back in April, 1st of April, uh, one of the Enigma machines was stolen from Bletchley <laughs> Park. Because that's what you need in the year 2000, is a antiquated... Code-breaking mechanism from the Second right. World War. Right. Did they get it back? Well, yeah, it was stolen on the first of Well, there was a bit of a mystery about that. Um, in September, a man identifying himself as the Master <laughs> sent a note demanding £25,000 and threatening to destroy the machine if the ransom was not paid. <laughs> uh, I hope he deciphered something on the Enigma How do machine. I not remember this? No, this, this is nuts. No, this is... But in early October 2000, Bletchley Park officials announced that they would pay the ransom, but the stated deadline passed with no word from the blackmailer. Shortly afterward, the machine was sent anonymously to BBC journalist Jeremy Paxman, missing three rotors. The machine, not Paxman. His rotor (laughs) quota was uh, full. What? So... so... (laughs) Clearly somebody with a... Yeah. A very strange way to... A rotor loose, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, strange way to try and make some money, really. Yeah, Try and make some money and then realise that you're in massively over your head and maybe you're not the master. No, because I suspect trying to sell that on a sort of collector's market would be impossible even. So they just took the rotors out just to... Be a nuisance. Just to be a nuisance. But I'm sure Jeremy Paxman was excited with that package turning up at his door. (laughs) (laughs) He'd be like, why somebody sent me an Enigma machine with some cogs missing? Very strange. Dear Mr Paxman. 1st of July 2000, the... Orasund Bridge between Denmark and Sweden is officially opened for traffic. Oh, right. So that's the bridge that features in the, the prime drama, The Bridge. It I is. Believe, which I've never seen, but, you mm, know. That's very good. It is a bridge. It's all right here. 8th of September, 2000. Okay. 
anyone who's been following the news in the UK for the past week will find this hilarious. UK fuel protests. <laughs> Panic buying by motorists leading to nationwide petrol shortages. That is not the news from this week, but it is also the news from this week in 2021. So, Well, the more things change. Exactly. Um, 15th of September, Summer Olympics in Sydney. And then we have our diamond heist. And obviously lots of other stuff went on, but I've not listed it because it was mainly horrible things. Okay. So there you go. That was the year 2000. I'm afraid I have no hovercraft information. About no. The, no turn-of-the-century hovercraft information or, at all. No. I wonder when the last... Ch- cross-channel hovercraft was. I bet that was around then. Yeah, it's def- definitely uh, past the golden age of the hovercraft by uh, 2000. Yeah, we've not talked guess, about hovercrafts for some time, have we? <laughs> no, well, I'll just I'll mention them there just so that, you know, mm. people keeping track know them. Remind. They're always in our thoughts. Well, they, they are. are. <laughs> anyway, so what was going on around this period for Ed McBain slash Evan Hunter? Well, I will tell you now. He wrote The Last Dance, the book we're about to discuss. And also we have two short story collections come out in 2000. One's called Running From Legs, and the other one's called Barking at Butterflies. Um, they're both good collections. I've got got them upstairs. Um, Whose legs? Well, you'd have to read the story to find uh, out, wouldn't you? Two Gs, I reckon. No, it's a single, uh. single G. But those are, those are credited, actually, on the cover as Ed McBain, a.k.a. Evan Hunter. Mm. So clearly he was making a point here of sort of merging his names in a way. It's sort of, yeah, I don't really know why. It could have just been Ed McBain things, but it's a collections of stories that I think had been published under the Evan Hunter name, so possibly it was just dragging the McBain thing in for popularity's mm. reason, as mm. it's still his better-known yeah. name. And as we've discussed before, the it was in the sort of July 2000 that the, the night they raided Minsky's play with the book by Evan Hunter was supposed to be presented for the first time but as i've explained in the past lots of things went wrong with that including the death of the uh, producer and stuff like that and it was cancelled and ultimately remade years later without evan hunter's book gosh imagine a thing about plays and books and things like that i wonder when that will next crop up well hmm, hmm. in about two minutes time yes uh, Last Dance, as I say, is book 50. It's um, In the US, it comes out in, in Simon & Schuster, hardback, on the 12th of January 2000. That's the release date. The US paperback is in Pocket Books. So, as I mentioned last time, we're back to the original publishers of the series. And in the UK, it is in Hodder & Stoughton, with the New English Library as the paperback version. The last of the four books done in Hodder, um, New English Library. So we have another publisher in the UK for the last few. We open with the same dedication we're going to have for the rest of the series, which is this. Yet another time is for my wife, Dragishka Dimitrovich Hunter. Simple as that, really. And so we come to The Last Dance. Have we all read this before? Uh, first time for me. I've read it before, yes. <clears throat> I think it was the first time for me as well. Certainly it was upside down on my bookcase, which was my system I used, but then I moved the books around, so it may have <laughs> may have fallen apart in, in, in that uh, activity. Right, well, I'm going to do a quick attempt at summing it up before we get going, because the title doesn't necessarily give much away, even as the book goes along. Perhaps that's something we could mention, because it's not about dancing. No. At all. Although, it's, I suppose, it's called The Last Dance. It's book 50 from a, an author who's 
getting on a bit at this point. I wonder if there was a little bit of maybe this could be the last one. Well, possibly. Maybe, yeah. You know, like the end of the mil- uh, millen- new, new millennium and all that. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, maybe it, he, he thought a bit about that at the time. Quite Who knows? possibly. Yeah. But you don't get too much inkling from anything that happens, really. No. Maybe no. the death of one long-standing character, but hard, yes, yes, indeed. hardly a particularly essential one. But we basically open with the somewhat suspicious death of uh, an older gentleman and meet his his daughter. We find ourselves tied up in a series of events to do with the theatre again because he can't help himself, going back to that. There's, yeah, suspicious death from, of one character and then several other deaths that all start to tie in. Rehypnol is one of the things that's featured heavily in this book. So clearly it's the, you know, the rise of that as a drug on the street scene at the time is, is one of the big influences on this as well. And we have things happening in different parts of the city. We have a lot with Ollie Weeks. And ultimately this all ties together into working out why these people have been killed, how it relates to a play, how it relates to race riots essentially going on in the city, uh, or near race riots anyway in these cases. And also how things can possibly tie into the death, as Steve mentioned, of a long-running character. It's, yeah, it's another one that's quite hard to, to sum up, really. Yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is what it says on the back of our editions of the book. A man with no enemies is found hanging it in what appears to be a suicide, but Corella and company soon discover that, drugged and unconscious, he could not possibly have hanged himself. They are dealing with murder. Well, that's not going to be a shock. Anyone's reading these books... The investigation takes him into the politics and passions of a musical in preparation, or rather two, one that happened half a century ago and one that is happening now. You know, this from a man who's just started preparing the book, or just finished preparing the book for a new version of a musical that was Mm. happening. Yeah. (laughs) You know, originally in the 60s. (sighs) How many books ago was it since we had another play being made? It was, uh, my memory is very short, but I suspect... Not that long ago. One or two or yeah, three books ago, we had ago a very, all. very similar happenings. Romance, I think, was that the last one that had it in? I think that had some play stuff. Do you know what? I can't look at the list now. I'm, I'm as bad as you, Steve-O, that yeah. I can't actually remember once we've done them. No. It's, but it's it's been common. He's got a very bad habit at this stage of his career in picking titles that bear virtually no connection to what happens in the... Uh, in the book. Yeah, after spending quite a lot of years coming up with titles that have several different meanings. Um, like cop hater, com- you just know instantly, yeah. yeah, you can remember it. Or, or, yeah. It's gone the opposite way now, it's just like, they almost feel like, nah, they'll do. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's quite an interesting one. We spoke about it the other day, perhaps I should have recorded my thoughts Um when we chatted about it the other day, but um, yeah, it's like it starts with a bit of all the hallmark of like an oldie, an older kind of eighty seventh yeah. precinct with the suicide, but then is it murder and like a, a lot of um, footwork, I suppose, isn't there from the the, the detectives uh, with a really guilty seeming daughter that they can't really seem to ever pin anything on but they, they come very v- quick to get the lawyers involved yeah lawyers. yeah very on the very defensive from the get-go which gets their um suspicions raised 
but then does but then it kind of gets a bit bogged down in the like the theater comings and goings because they find out that this bloke um had acquired some rights to a, a an extinct well an old extinct play that they wanted to make into a musical and then Ollie Weeks gets involved because the same drug that they find in the dead man's found in a, a dead girl in another part of the city. Yeah. Um, and then he just gets really quiet. I remember being gets... two-thirds of this book through and then Ollie, Ollie Weeks disappears for about 150 pages and then he comes back and you, you're kind of thinking, what, what on earth was he doing? I, I can't remember. Well, do do get... take a, a series of, of quite sudden kind of tangents and all of a sudden there are the threads all over the place aren't there yeah and it, it eventually does bring everything kind of wraps everything together again but for for a bit certainly a chunk of the middle i was kind of wondering what on earth was going on really <laughs> uh, which is quite odd for mm. odd for him really so yeah so it was kind of both old-fashioned and a bit of a yeah, kind of too many plates spinning. Yeah, and then some of the other killings that we should mention, the, the character that died was uh, uh, Danny Gimp. Yes. Who, who gets shot up, which is quite sad, in a uh, a pizzeria. And yet that's another crime mm. that's thrown in that you're not really sure whether it's connected to anything else or not. I found Danny Gimp being killed uh, quite unsatisfying on a number of levels. It's yeah. like... Because he's had quite a relationship with Steve Carell, yeah. particularly, and there doesn't seem to be sort of anything really particularly about that. It's not that you don't we don't dwell on that at all. There's no sort of sign of Carella feeling like sadness about yeah. it. Yeah. Also, I, I could be wrong. I could be forgetting, or yeah, misremembering. But wasn't Danny Gimp not actually a criminal and? He's he's done time for something that yes was so, was so, fairly then, ridiculous. But then suddenly he actually in this he actually has been involved in crime and that's why he's being yeah yeah he's well it's stated in this that he makes off with fifty grams worth of drugs or something yeah yeah, yeah. I, um, I, 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 that seems completely out of the blue and really out of character for him yeah I think it is it is strange and I don't know why he's decided to do that really. And it's kind of well known that he's a stoolie, and yet it wouldn't be well known that he's a stoolie because otherwise he wouldn't be able to yeah. function in that job. Yeah, and like yeah, you're right. In the bits where he dies, he kind of like gets shot, and you're kind of expecting a bit of reflection from yeah, Corella about like exactly their, it, they have yeah. a slightly odd relationship, but mm. they they still have a certain friendship yeah, there. The, 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 Certainly the, in the older books, and yet that all seems totally. Jettison, dear. Um, yes, well, that was a comment made when I sort of opened up the floor on, on Twitter to ask people what they thought about it, you know. And uh, a couple of our listeners, uh, Jez and, and Matthew, sort of saying, yeah, Corella's reaction to Danny Gimp's death just doesn't seem to ring true in the book mm. because he doesn't pay it any heed almost. No. And which is odd, especially given that since Corella supposedly turns 40, he's been doing quite a lot of soul-searching and thinking yeah. about relationships, and, you know, we do that in the book. But then this one, which is a very old, established relationship, cop and informer though it may be, is just by the by, mm. really. So that is very strange. Yeah, it's like McBain kind of, like, forgot what their <laughs> relationship was, which, 
You'd be surprised, but maybe he had, I don't know. Well, talking about forgetting things that the author may have done, mm-hmm. I think this book has at least two examples of the author correcting <laughs> issues. Uh, yeah, definitely. Is that with the Blaney's? He, do, he does a big bit about them, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it was, is it also um, with uh, Ollie Weeks's uh, precinct? Yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> so, because oh, he's moved. Well, he has to move in this, doesn't he? Well, in, in this one, he's well, he's in the 88th. Yeah. But actually, he starts out in the 83rd, yeah, but yeah. we don't know that he's moved. It, and so in this book, there's a point where Ollie's sort of just going on about, well, people don't ask me this stuff, I'll not find out, which is the author's way of saying, oh, stuff's happened in the background, and stop hassling me about it. I think he also suggests that he's got his middle name wrong as well. It's, oh, I can't quite pin that down to... I Yeah, I remember something about that. Yeah, something about it being Lloyd, but it comes Wendell. Yeah, and but the the Blaney's, so Carl Carl Blaney and Paul Blaney, the medical examiners, and straight away in this this first chapter, what he's done is he's brought in he's brought in Carl Blaney, and then he's had to explain that he's clearly forgotten that the name he used for him was Paul originally. <laughs> so Paul Blaine, Blaney first appears in the Con Man, which is nineteen fifty seven, and like nine other books up to this point. Carl Blaney first appears in Tricks and the Big Bad City, so it's clearly in the last couple of appearances he's got the name wrong, and now he's retro actively <laughs> making them a pair of identical twins, both working in the same part of the city as medical examiners. But he, but he jokes about it. He has a good joke about that, actually, doesn't he? It's quite funny. How many yeah. Blaney's are they? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of weird things going on in here. Quite a lot of odd little references, bits and pieces, um, including like this first death is supposedly with a guy who's had heart trouble. And again, this is this is McBain able to say, well, this has been my experience talking about angioplasty and, and, and various heart attacks and things like that. So he, that's something he knows well mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, there's a lot of coincidence in this book. And there is some mention of like coincidence happens. And mm-hmm. as we know, we've dealt with this before. But there's a lot of coincidence in this book. There's a street drug like Rehypnol. Yeah, how on earth In a city the link- size of yeah. Isola. They, they would no, there's no way that they would link such different locations and and type of victim. Yeah. Uh, as yeah, as solidly as they do. Because it is, you know, it's obviously known as a date rape drug. We do have a scene with a date rape in this book as well, as the death of a seemingly unrelated younger black girl to this old older white man, and it's all the same supplier. Which is a lot of coincidence mm. for them for that to have happened and them to pull it all together in a like I say in a city the size of of Iceland where with what would be a pretty common street drug. Yeah, I would have thought not that I am moving those circles. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So let's have a little little tickle through. Well, actually, Morgan, as a first time reader, so what were your general thoughts on on it overall? I, 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 as I always do, I did enjoy it, but I I was kind of a bit despairing of mm-hmm. just the, the amount of directions it went in. It just felt like there were quite a lot of things that needn't have been in there, which made the whole thing seem less plausible. And I think he, he could have just cut out and probably like one or two murders, yes. um, yeah. <laughs> one, or, one or two strands and just made the whole, the, the rest of it a lot tighter. And it would have been probably quite a lot more satisfying. Yeah. Um, 
but that said, still always great fun, isn't it? But um, yeah, it's it's an odd one, definitely. It's uh, I was really enjoying where it was, how it was going along until at least halfway through, and then I kind of found myself going. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on with it being like the first half holds up well, and then it all just starts slightly falling to pieces under its own needless complexity. Mm. Yeah, um, and it's not complexity for cleverness's sake you know you do, you never get a oh my god moment in this do you no, you know like which sometimes you get when things are dead complicated and all the pieces yeah these things and that you get a real you know put together like clockwork and something just clicks you around you just like now i get it yeah. you, there was never a moment like that it just kind of all comes together and you're just like Oh, right, okay, well, why did Al Willis have to get shot then? Yeah. You know, like, mm. why, why you know, really, did Danny Gimp have to die? Yeah, why why did the play need to be um, pinched from another play that someone else also gets killed? Does that need to happen, really? Yeah, you see, that's when he starts getting... Yeah, because he's he's written a whole huge book as Evan Hunter about plagiarism Mm. based on his own experiences, which is the Paper Dragon. Yeah. You know... Why is he sort of dragging that story into this story that can't really go anywhere? Mm. A 1920s playwright yeah, gave a play to a man who's then killed and she'd nicked it from another 1920s playwright who herself gets killed. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> what? Really? Yeah. And the, the ultimate... Uh, perp here is completely ridiculous as well Uh, and that the whole mechanism of (laughs) who did it is just absurd really well I'm just going to go through some of these notes of things that have happened in the chapters so there's a chat in the second chapter between uh, Corella and Maya they're going to talk about a Robin Williams film that they've seen or one of them's seen uh, which I worked out had to be What Dreams May Come a film I've never seen. Mm. It came out in 1998, but it was based on a book by Richard Matheson, who I think wrote I Am Legend. Uh, yeah, and The Incredible, well, The, the Shrinking Man and... Yeah. yeah, all those things, and, and would have been in quite a lot of the sci-fi sort of pulp magazines that Evan Hunter wrote for as well in the early days. Excellent. So there was, you know, Matheson sort of grew up in New York City at the same age as, as Evan Hunter, so it's a... I don't know if it's a de- deliberate reference to someone mm-hmm. he knew or... Just hmm. yeah, but that, that's an interesting yeah. one. And also that same chapter, we have a reference to High and Low. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. by some 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 author some author of pulp. Yeah, cheap paperbacks or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Something like that. <laughs> Although that again doesn't ring true because I think it's the daughter who's like, oh no, I was out at a at a Kurosawa retrospective watching High and Low. It's like, <laughs> were you? That's interesting. That's, I mean, I'd like to see it in the cinema, but uh, it's um. Yeah, he crowbars that in there. So yeah. self-referential. Stuff. It, it is. It does feel rather crowbar, doesn't <laughs> it? Yeah. But that's the chapter then where we meet uh, Danny Gimp again in this pizza place, sat down with Corella. I don't know whether he's trying to suggest that Danny is changed because he does say he doesn't look well mm. for a man who's never looked particularly well. He looks worse off, and he's asking for five grand for this information, which Corella's about to give him essentially. Mm. To you know, this is apparently their slush fund for this sort of thing is. It's going to stretch that far. But, you know, before he can do anything, two people come into a packed daytime pizza place and kill him while he's talking to a policeman, which seems like an odd way to do a hit. Mm. Really 
given that actually what comes out of that is the fact that they're both captured on CCTV. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, given that they're professionals, yeah, yeah surely two, they just wait. Pro- and- yeah, for career criminals who, yeah, it seems odd. Yeah, to say the least. But yeah, anyway, that means the end of Daniel Nelson. You know, the informer we've known since cop hater. Okay. So it's that's a significant death there, yes. really. We will miss him, even if Steve Carell apparently doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, never mind. Um, let's see what else happens. We get into our third chapter. We, which is where we see Ollie Weeks again, and he starts talking about correcting the, you know, the difference between the eighty third and the eighty eighth <laughs> precinct and, and stuff like that. And but I mean, here's another weird thing: if Danny wants five grand for information, why does he give Corella a little snippet of information that seems to be the most important bit that <laughs> enables them to then talk to Ollie to find out this guy at a poker game? And, and yeah, they just find him anyway, don't yeah. they? In about ten minutes. <laughs> Yeah. Crow's probably I've saved the police department five grand here by having his, you know, he's dead now, I don't have to do anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a bit of a weird one in these sort of more you know, well, twenty first century stories mm. where it's like some guys at a poker game knew this guy who said he was doing this. I don't know, maybe that still did happen like that, but it's 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 an odd one. Mm. And of course we then go off and meet uh, the Reverend Gabriel Foster. So, yeah, this this notion of um, if they're going to go and interview people, particularly in black parts of the city, this idea of a sensitive location uh, was a real thing, yeah. you know, because we had, um, what was it, 1994, there was a thing in the mosque in Harlem where there was a fake call to the police, and so, like an officer in danger type call. Uh, so the police rush there and they get mobbed, essentially, and beaten up and, and uh, someone was killed. And then you have two days later, you've got a... a a black um, cleric's son is killed by a police officer, which also sort of echoes a bit of Corella and killing Sonny Cole in the book before as well, and a police officer killing a young black man for whatever yeah. reason, you know, the story in the 87th Precinct. Uh, but, uh, you know, this had been happening since the 70s, 1972. There was another incident in a mosque in Harlem with a fake emergency call with someone who turned up and was shot. And so, it, you know, those tensions had been running a long, long time in, yeah. in New York. So... They're happening now in Isola in these stories. And they've sort of happened before as well. Mm-hmm. So they track down this guy called Walter Harpo Hopwell, who they're trying to use to identify someone who... He says he met someone who told him he was a hitman and was in the city to do a job. And there's identifying Mark. And this goes absolutely nowhere. Yeah. There's <laughs> a blue star on the tip of his penis. Yes. Which, other than the thought of having a tattoo there, is... Terrifying. Um, I don't really know why they're doing that. He puts that in particularly. No. I don't know if he just heard a story about someone who had such a tattoo and thought that's an amusing detail, I'll put that in or or, or what. But it doesn't really serve a purpose, does it? No, other than he wants to talk about this character being bisexual. That way you can use him as a character to meet and be with different people in the story but it seems like a strange detail to say oh how do i represent this guy has slept with a man oh he must know something very specific about his his downstairs (laughs) (laughs) but then this hitman also turns out to be a serial killer though doesn't he which is a bit weird well he's killing all sorts of people on, on his way around here so but without any motive whatsoever well, it... <laughs> I could understand why he kills the old man because somebody pays him to do it. Yeah. 
but yeah, the fact that he then just whilst he's on this just decides to kill some yeah, other folk whilst he's on holiday. Busman's holiday, yeah. It yeah. just seems weird. Well, it, well, obviously it's weird, but like it just yeah. seems highly unlikely. Yeah. But anyway, we learn by this point that th- what they're looking for is someone from Houston. Now, I'm saying that in my accent, which hmm. is a sort of north of England accent. I'm saying Houston because I'm thinking of Houston, Texas. Hmm. That's how I'd say it. I don't think I'd say Houston. I wouldn't say Houston. I certainly wouldn't say Houston. But we'll come back to that, I think, in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. So they're searching for someone, flights from in and out of like uh, Texas from Houston and stuff like that. Ollie's going to the scene of the murder of this young black girl and starts investigating and also starts talking to a piano teacher about her teaching him five songs. That's one of the best bits of the book is like him and his personal investigation because he does like a lot of old fashioned, like tracing her steps at that time mm. of night. And thinks, well, how did she get from here to yeah. B? She must have got the bus. So he gets the bus and meets a bit yeah. of a, a classic crank on the bus, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then goes to a like a shop and then a diner. And that's quite mm. that had like echoes of like older McBain and you know with proper good footwork. Now they were good chap, good chapter to read that you know because it's like yeah. old fashioned. Mm. Kind of like hard work on his behalf, really. Yeah, Ollie once again proving that he is yeah. Both a dreadful bigot, but also a brilliant cop. Yeah, which is such a useful thing for the for an author to have in their <laughs> toolkit. I think really as a, a way of filling up the pages because we're going to see a lot more of Ollie in, in the books to come. But well, as you say, he's obsessed with getting piano lessons whilst he just, he's doing this. Yeah. Uh... Is that he just wants to learn five songs? Yeah, because if you've got five songs, you're sorted for parties. And people <laughs> think you're smart. <laughs> I seem to think he does keep up the piano in books to come. I, I think I've I've read bits about that in future ones, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's a good sequence where Maya Maya's winding Ollie up about about being a character in a book. Yeah. Which has happened to Maya Maya himself <laughs> in the past. Which so is, is he is he real is he is that something real that he's on about? Yes. It is. Do, do you know who it is? Uh, uh, John Connolly did did I write down? Um, yeah. Every Dead Thing, I think. Yeah, so a book from 1999 by, by this Irish author called John John Connolly. It's got a character called Fat Ollie Watts in it. Yeah. But uh, he puts the boot in, doesn't he, as well? It's just a Thomas Harris oh, rip-off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I suspect... Yeah, that's a bit of a weird coincidence, that, isn't from it? His, his, his Charlie Parker series, which I, I'd like to assume is about the legendary jazz saxophonist um, solving crimes. Solving crimes in Ireland, for some <laughs> reason, yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah, I suspect in the background, probably Evan Hunter was like, he's clearly using one of my characters, can I sue him? It's a different name, uh, um, Evan, leave it, yeah. it'll cost you too much. Okay, I'll just stick it in the book again. Yeah. yeah. So, there we go. I'm exactly what I think about this book yeah <laughs> yeah there's some weird references as well in this to, as ollie's like this keep going on about the learning of the piano and he's talking to a, a waitress he mentions that um strangers when we meet the evan hunter book and film was because he's cause she gets strangers in the night mixed up with the, mm. that title so that's another self-reference bit <laughs> there's also mentions like matchbox 20 you <laughs> two alanis morissette and coincidental to me choosing one of her albums fiona apple yeah. as well 
I think he mentions Criminal by Fiona Apple, which is from her first album. <laughs> so that's just weird with those thinking of in Ed McBain's hands, him writing Matchbox 20. It's peculiar, isn't it? And then I think, does he end up deciding he's going to learn Satisfaction, which should sound very odd on the piano. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very odd. <laughs> but yeah, so wind things forward. Eventually discover out who the hitmen are. They've been hired by this drugs guy to go after... Danny Gimp, CCTV brings a witness forward. The, the black hitman is left in custody. The other is bailed, which obviously inflames racial tensions uh-huh. in the city, especially when two cops go in and beat the, um, excuse the language, living shit out of him. Yeah. Um, Bingo and Bop. I was going to say, that I knew they had some kind of zany nicknames. Bingo and Bop. So I don't know what the story is there. He's suggesting perhaps that the drug squads in the police were sort of a law unto themselves. In fact, I know they were in a lot of uh. the history of, of New York police anyway, but they go and lit- they're just like... Yeah, some it's horrible. Idi- yeah, uh, some idiot jailer just lets them in. Doesn't even take their names, does he? So they no. can't... They, they don't even know who it is. Yeah, he could have definitely remembered if they'd said, oh, it's Bingo and Bob. But classic sort of one-scene characters, you know, mm. in and out, that he still manages to infuse with interesting characteristics, even just the nicknames alone. Because yeah. he does give their proper names, but once you hear those nicknames and know they're <laughs> a couple of cops, it's like you can tell they've got a, a story <laughs> in their, you know, in their own lives as well. But ultimately, you know, while they're trying to get these two hitmen, there's a there's a, a, a gunfight where the, the cops have to go and, you know, in their Kevlar vests with their with their guns, and Hal Willis gets shot in the thigh. Okay, so that's representing the risk that happens mm-hmm. in a in a police raid when you try and capture someone. But why do they shoot Hal? Why do they get Hal Willis shot and then put him in hospital? I don't. Where think... he gets a bit hallucinates and starts dreaming of Marilyn Hollis. Yeah. And then gives the name of the book. Yes. So, like somebody who's virtually has no involvement in any of the book is the person who yeah. whose little paragraph names it. It's just odd. Dead it, it odd, is isn't it? A peculiar thing. And he also says to, to Sharon, it wasn't Bert's fault. And I've read and I've reread the scene where they this guy opens fire on them. And there's no point as it suggested that it's Bert Kling's mm, fault no. at all. It's very odd. So yeah. I don't the whole thing, yeah, it's another weird little narrative cul-de-sac, which I just think but okay. like a cul-de-sac of which he then thinks is, he, he names the book, the book after. after it, yeah. It's yeah. just Yeah, it's just really peculiar. Yeah. So I can't I mean I've I've read the next book in the sequence about a long time ago, so I can't tell if there's any uh, or can't remember if there's any follow-on from this in, in the character's can't stuff. Remember. But yeah. I don't think there is. You know, I don't know how he how he writes or how did he write at this period of time, but if if you're writing in such a fashion where he didn't know literally what how the book was going to proceed maybe some of these cul-de-sacs he didn't know they're going to be cul-de-sacs at the point of writing them yeah how did but i don't know how people write really how he wrote well it's, do you see what i mean he yeah, made, no, it, I do, yeah you know maybe something kept, might possibly have come of that but it didn't yeah. but he, he kept it in nonetheless yeah you'd think that might be the kind of thing that a, a, an editor might gently suggest yeah. is uh, excised yeah yeah <laughs> yeah just, yeah, but yeah, another peculiarity. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, then we have a load more stuff about the play, and so we meet all these people who are involved in the production of the play, so as they try to get all the rights together from these people around the world, uh, we have a reference to a, a play about soccer, a comedy play about soccer written by a Liverpoolian. Yeah. Which I've tried to see if there was anything existed, but I couldn't find anything there. Uh, uh, an actor that they meet says that he was once in the play Detective Story, now, Detective Story, which coincidentally was on um, TV the other night here, oh. the, the film of the play, oh. so I've taped that. Detective Story, it was a very well-known play. It's got quite a big influence on things like Barney Miller and stuff like that. But in 1957, while he was doing amateur dramatics, Ed McBain was in a production of Detective Story, <laughs> playing one of the burglars in it. Um, <laughs> So it was a play from 1949 set in a squad room, essentially. Excellent. So I suspect that's also been an influence on the 87th Precinct. You'd imagine so, yeah. I would have thought, one way or another. But we have a British person as one of these people involved in the play's production and rights management, Gerald Palmer, which is clearly the sort of name that (laughs) (laughs) British people have. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so there's various people who have a certain level of desperation of getting this play made. Yeah. And were they capable of murder to make it happen? Yes. Um, so you have a classic sort of, they go to everyone and, and talk to them as a group, or they talk to them individually. And There's a lot of footwork, you know, that's the best parts of the book, really, all, all the mm. toing and froing, isn't it, of which there's a lot of. Yeah. One thing we know is that the hitman is supposedly Jamaican. That sends Ollie down to a, a sort of areas where... A lot of Jamaicans are housed together, which leads him to where he needs to be, essentially. And let's address it. So, people will remember the book Lady, Lady, I Did It, okay, from a long time ago now, where the end of that story hinges on the notion that someone with an accent says the word carpenter, where they mean car painter. And it's a really ludicrous thing to hinge the story on. Now, what happens here, Morgan? <laughs> um, so, yeah, is it this where we getting up to, to, to Houston and Houston? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, a man, a, a, a man from, from, from Houston. Oh, yeah, Houston, uh, you, uh, yeah. I, I, you see, I, can't, I can't, can't tell how I say it now because I'm thinking, <laughs> about, thinking about it. about it, yeah. Houston, Texas. Does anyone, particularly in the States, would anyone say Houston, Texas? Yeah. So earlier in the book, he talks about how people might pronounce Houston differently. And I don't get it because you see, I just don't think any. I how, mean, someone may prove us wrong. If you, if you pronounce Houston as Houston, yeah, let me know. Yeah. Um, it's like how, Houston, how would like Houston, a, a Houston. British Jamaican would never in a million years say to somebody in America that they came from Houston. They would... You, you would never even say you came from Houston if you were explaining it to somebody from Manchester or Liverpool. You would say London or North London. Or, you would never say Houston. So the fact that a, a, a British Jamaican would say Houston and an American would get that mixed up with him coming from Houston in Texas, where clearly <laughs> you would think, but you're a British Jamaican, you don't come from Houston. That would be really odd. I don't and surely these, people, to me. <laughs> surely these people would have known that he 
Yeah, he was a foreigner, wouldn't he? Well, yeah, I mean... But he's, he's also managing to be a hitman and a serial killer at the same time whilst he's on his holidays. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh... No, I think it's a tricky one. I, I don't like this idea of you hinging it on, on a word being pronounced differently and that being misheard. and that mm. sort of, um, It's an odd one. Like you say, for anyone who doesn't know London, yeah, there are bits of London where you would say, oh, I'm from such and such a place mm. and name the region of London. If it was Euston, Euston isn't really a, a residential area. I don't think it has a neighbourhood, really, does no. it? It's no. where there's a big train station. Yeah. It's not far from another big train station in King's Cross as well. It's it's where people arrive into London to go off to wherever wherever else from around the country. They turn up on the train there and there's, you know, businesses, some entertainment things, but there's not really, it's not a big residential area. So it's a tiny amount of Euston in London would be residential. Mm. And this is only in 2000. We're not talking about like back in the 50s no. where it's likely that there would be more of it because mm. there was more sort of central housing in big cities then. So it's a bit, I just feels like he's got this notion and has written the story using it and it's a bit rubbish to me. Anyway. Well, he doesn't even need to bother with it, does he? Because the Houston bit means he can't find him. So so what? He could just totally jettison all that bit and it wouldn't change the advancement Ollie, of the yeah, plot Ollie's, whatsoever. Ollie's, Ollie would have tracked him down via the means he did anyway. Yeah, he's just, yeah. He's just a man called John Bridges and nobody knows where he came from. He's just a Jamaican. Yeah. So why do you need to everyone think he comes from Houston because they try that and fail, but it takes up about a page of the book in the manging around at the airport. Yeah. So what? Just get rid of it. And he, But he puts it in just to have this daft Yeah, He's obviously point. not really attached to the idea of this misunderstanding sent them on the, right, on the wrong track. Yeah, but this daft Yeah, it, it is daft. Point. So as if they just found out that this... this Hitman had been around and they said, Oh no, yeah, yeah he's from London actually. They'd still do the putting two and two together that they do, which is tie him to Gerald Palmer, who is also from London, and that's important. But you don't need the joke word yeah, to do that at all. Quite. If they, if they wanted to misdirect it, they could have said he's from London and they could have gone and looked for planes to London, Ontario, and you know. <laughs> yeah. It could have come from. I don't know where he could have come from. Boston, couldn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lincolnshire. Boston um, Lynx. Hitman. Yeah, that would have been a nice touch, yeah. But anyway, yes, it's <laughs> yeah. all a bit... It does get a bit strange. So anyway, they ultimately pull in this guy, Gerald Palmer, who just turns out to be uh, not a mastermind behind things, but actually quite a stupid man. Yes. And the other thing that baffles me, though, is he brings in the British consul, uh, British consul, and he appears to be a character from a totally different book. He like comes in like a comedy character out of flipping Woodhouse or something like that. Or like, oh, never mind, old chap. Da 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 da. Yeah, it's quite funny though. He's like, sure, you got nothing to give these chaps now. Well, if you didn't do anything, you're absolutely <laughs> fine. But you know that he knows that he's done it. Yeah, just like, well, oh, you nothing. know, there's no extradition thing here. You know, this is. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Um. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's just. So obviously this 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 guy is uh, another of the well he's really desperate to get the play made into this other play yeah that nope which is also a bit peculiar in the fact that all these people are so convinced that it's going to be a massive hit and yet 
Well, we've he's done th- this he's before. He's done this before. He's calculated how much money a play mm. will make and used it as part of the, and yet, the justification the year, for. It's, it's the year two thousand, and they're remaking an eighty-year-old play that was a like, was a flop first time like, round. They're using the songs from the original musical, but re- rewriting the book. Is that that right? Oh, I can't even tell anymore. But sure, surely you wouldn't bother with any of that. You just what? What is the? It's, it's, it's as though it's such a surefire hit, and yet it reads like it's just going to be a surefire failure. And yet this well, guy well, from London, the... who's clearly a bit of a failure and doesn't have much money, goes to the expense of hiring a hitman in his yeah. own country, paying him to fly to America, and then he just Having wanders round... convinced someone else to yeah. be in it yeah. with him. Wanders round Isola, killing people, having the time of his life. I guess they have the bit where... I think he really? plays all the songs through on the piano, and they they are quite magical, aren't they? I think yeah. the songs. So that that's why everyone thinks it's going to be a surefire hit. I just think perhaps Evan Hunter, Ed McBain, his own experience in the theatre, because he couldn't, you know, as we know, couldn't crack it much as he really, really wanted to. And you, again, you can you feel his frustration at, mm-hmm. at that in in this book. Doesn't really understand the scale and the. You mean there'd be at any time there'll be. Hundreds, probably thousands of players try to get on the stage in the equivalent of Broadway or off-Broadway in in the fictional and real worlds here. So it's... I don't know. But anyway, it all comes together. The threat of the death penalty is the thing that makes people betray each other, strangely enough. Yeah. All right, we better wrap this up. We've done a terrible... We've done as bad a job at describing this as perhaps in this occasion McBain has done in pulling all the threads no, I together we, effectively. I think we've... Uh, I don't know... Well, shall I? Uh, I think I think my uh, summary of it be for it's got lots of totally unbelievable absurdity to it, but in there, a hell of a lot of the book is spent with some pretty good, engaging, old-fashioned procedural work, which some of the early entries were were full of. Yeah. So it's not without its um, very enjoyable bits. It's just it's just starts. Collapsing in a heap under its own <laughs> needless complexity, really. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that complexity is as daft as a brush. <laughs> daft as a brush. Well, do you want, having said that, do you want to give it a, a rating then? Right. Um, yeah, I'd, I think I probably. I've not looked at the Kenneth score for a while, but I think I would go something like 60. 60. All right. Yeah, okay. it's. Yeah, he gets heavy penalties for the treatment of Danny Gimp, so maybe even 60's generous, I don't know. but well, It's not without... I must admit, I was really, really enjoying it for the first half, and then it all starts, yeah, goes a bit south. Yeah. Well, Morgan, what do you think? Have I missed anything? Have we missed anything that we... I think think we've covered... It's hard to keep track, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I, I feel like we've covered most of it. Um, as you say, daft as a brush. Um, yeah, I too was saddened by the, um, the the short shrift that poor Danny Gimp gets. Um, I, I wanted to give him a, a nice send-off. I also didn't want him to suddenly inexplicably become a criminal after years of being mistaken for one but not actually being one. Yes. Um, <laughs> because that, that just seemed like a very odd thing. Yeah, as you say, lots of enjoyable stuff, but... Ultimately, I was just left thinking, oh, God, what have I just read? Um, <laughs> I, I might even go a little bit lower. I think I'm yeah. going to go for 56 police shields. Yeah, I don't, I don't think um, okay. I don't think you can criticise you there. 
No, I'm, I'm I'm much of the same mind. I, as always, I love reading these books. I enjoy the act of picking them up and starting and getting back into the world, getting back into the language, getting back into seeing where he's going to take us. But then I just hit the wall of the theatre again as a topic, <laughs> and that annoyed me more than anything else, really, because. There's lots, there's brilliant there's places gaz- to set it. There's a gazillion motives for crime, isn't there? And yeah. yet he keeps returning to a fairly boring, old-fashioned one yeah. time and time again in a, in a relatively short run mm. of the books, really. Yeah, so I found that a bit of a brick wall. I find the, the pun Houston-Houston <laughs> thing very odd. Uh, especially given that, like I say, he's used it before in, in Lady Lady, I did it to similarly effect. Um, but love to see Ollie Weeks being mad and learning the piano and going on about the piano. That's true. You know, he does ring up the piano teacher at the end to arrange to have his lessons. Um, there is a bit of old man McBain in this as well, in terms of the melting pot theory stuff, uh, black and white relations. And he's trying hard to sort of be a liberal person as he, as he is, but there is a bit of it comes off a old man yells at cloud occasionally with this, where he's, he's a bit like, he's so frustrated that the melting pot theory doesn't work. He can't quite, you know, he has to keep hammering it home from his opinion. But yeah, I'm on a 55, I think for this one. So, what does that give us, Kenneth? Gives us 57 police shields. Ooh. 57 police shields. 57. There we go. Well, there we are. Well, let's see what some of the contemporary reviews said at the time. We have Marcel Berlin's in The Times from the 15th of January, 2000. That's a nice, big, long review. I mean, there were quite a lot of these reviews were quite long because he did a lot of publicity for it, and it was the 50th book, so a lot of them actually were just talking about the series in mm. general. Yeah. Yeah, there can't be many, you know, police procedurals that are done 50. Yeah. Certainly at that stage. Mm. Probably no. Michael Connolly's probably done quite a lot. For, for, yeah, he uh, must be closing in on that by now, mustn't he? But back then, yeah. yeah. So, he concludes with, The usual investigations are conducted. The intercop bantering takes place, and the familiar sights and sounds of the city play their atmospheric roles. The Last Dance is unlikely to feature amongst the most memorable of the 87th Precinct tales, but it's still far more enjoyable than most crime novels. Yeah, and he's got it right. You know, the banter's there, the investigation's yeah. all there. It's yeah. just... Yeah. So we have a review from The Observer by Jay Rayner. Oh, right. From the 30th of January 2000. Enough, well, enough, I'll tell you what's interesting. Not enough food in it. Yeah. Jay Rayner, for anyone who doesn't know, was, I think, most well-known to people in the UK as a food writer and critic, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think he's read any other books here, because... <laughs> no, no, well, no, I mean, books in general. I mean, <laughs> not, not at all. It's the first book I've ever read. I can't say I cared for it. Won't be doing another one. This yeah. is the first book I've ever read that didn't contain a recipe for... <laughs> yeah. So he's talking about, there's a lot about uh, drugs and, and rehypnosis. Without reading any of the others, it is impossible to know, but one imagines that trends, fashions and social phenomena like this find their way into the pages of each 87th Precinct book. Yes. So it is interesting that he's reviewing it, having this presumably being the only one he's read. Yeah. In less skilled hands, it could seem forced or unwelcome. McBain is better than that. And yet he does have his weaknesses, most obviously when he steps off home turf. A storyline out of London introduces a number of British characters who are grossly stereotyped and clumsily drawn. Yeah. Yeah. 
Did the British honorary consul really have to sport a bristly moustache that made him look like a cavalry colonel? <laughs> Likewise, a plot point turns on a character describing himself as being from Euston, London. Does anybody ever describe themselves as being from Euston? Oh. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, we've it's got like he was with us. Yeah, well, that's exactly what Possessed we've said. by the spirit it? of Jay Rayner. I don't know. Ed McBain, Evan Hunter, writes best about what he knows, which is the life and death of the city. He understands its rhythms. He knows what makes it tick. And he's been doing it so long now, it could hardly be otherwise. Hmm. So, much agreement. Yeah, so without any prior knowledge of the dizzy heights that he can, you know, Mr. Rayner there had just got to the heart of the matter, really, didn't he? Yeah, he's spot on, isn't he? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, Marilyn Stacio in the New York Times... McBain has always had a keen ear for the vernacular, but nowadays his dialogue is so sharp you could cut your wrists on it. I think that's fair enough. Hmm. Having stripped down and refined his language over the years to the point where it now conceals as much as it reveals, McBain forces us to think twice about every character we meet in The Last Dance, even those we thought we knew already. Years ago, I thought Ed McBain's books were sexy love songs to a cold, violent city. Now I think they are sad, slow dances in a city where everyone dances alone. Well, there we go. Very enigmatic, Marilyn. Yeah, so there we go. That's The Last Dance, book 50. We're in the 21st century with McBain. And uh, we will be moving on next time to book 51, which is Money, Money, Money from 2001. Blimey. That's the one with ABBA in it, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, That famous ABBA 87th Precinct crossover that everyone was hoping for. Yes. Anyway, until then, we will be uh, off doing our bonus episodes. I'll look out for that. But yeah, otherwise, I'm going to say goodbye, goodbye, as is Morgan. Fairly well. And Steve O. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.